We have the um, great honor of hearing from Josh Suddeth, who's our youth pastor today, and I just want to pray for him before um, he comes in and delivers God's word. So let's pray. Father, um, I thank you for this time. God, to remember that you are good, that you love us, and um, that there's a thirst inside of us that only you can satisfy. And so, Lord, um, through your scripture and through Josh's words, would you help us to see Jesus today? Because we know if we see him, we'll be changed. I lift my brother up to you and pray, God, would you anoint his words as he delivers your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's almost June. We're headed into the heart of the summer months, and God is thirsty. When God gets thirsty, he takes his giant God-sized straw, points it at a little square on the world, and that square is called Colorado. And then he whispers into existence a few fast-moving thunder showers that drop lots of water and occasionally some of that cool Chick-fil-A-style ice. And the crazy thing is that as soon as the water hits the ground, it's like God begins to suck it right back up that straw. And you and I are left buying an inordinate amount of chapstick watering our lawns once a month and wondering how in the world we can drink as much as we do and still feel thirsty. So we pack up our things and we go on up to the mountains. I hate feeling thirsty. It's one of the first things I noticed after moving out to Colorado. Uh, In the south, people's bodies secrete this thing that southerners call sweat. Uh, And I get thirsty living in Colorado, much more than I ever did growing up, and I drink gobs and gobs of Gatorade. But I've traveled the world enough to know that I've never thirsted like there are many people in the world who do on a daily basis. As you probably know, there are people that search on a daily basis for a clean drink of water, and there are entire projects devoted to providing clean drinking water and digging wells, both mission-centered projects and humanitarian projects. And while I've never thirsted in that kind of a way, uh, I have had seasons in my life where I've experienced a different kind of a thirst. And I want to talk a little bit about that this morning. If you have a Bible, and uh, you could turn with me to Psalm chapter 42. Psalm chapter 42, a familiar psalm to lots of us, uh, starts this way. And we're just going to read the first three verses this morning. It says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs after you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me, where is your God? And two things are abundantly clear in this psalm to me. One is that the writer of this psalm did not live in a climate similar to that of Colorado. Uh, Otherwise, his tears would have evaporated before they hit his lips. The second thing that's clear is that the writer of this psalm is desperate. This is a man whose soul is panting for God. Maybe you've been there. I've never personally witnessed a deer panting for streams of water, but I've got two toddler-aged boys at home. Notice here how the psalmist calls God his God. He says, my soul longs for you, my God. This is a man who knows God, and this is a man who's suffering, if not physically, at least emotionally, with his tears as his food, maybe feeling abandoned or 
wounded, or maybe even that God is silent when all he can hear is, where is your God? And if we step back from this for just a second, we see in the scriptures that there's a general groaning of the earth and creation, and I would even say people who don't know God that long for him, though they may not even know that he is what their souls ultimately desire for satisfaction. If we look in Romans 8, Romans 8 says it this way, it says, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. The creation itself was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in the hope that it might be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And it says, now we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And what all that boils down to, or if you could say it this way, the message version of that is this, that all of creation is thirsty for the kingdom to come. All of creation is thirsty for the kingdom to come. And Romans 8 says that this is a thirst that's created by the will of God. And I think that in a similar way, there are divine seasons where God orchestrates the circumstances of our lives in such a way that it creates a deep longing, uh, a thirsting for the king and the kingdom. Seasons that give us a deeper understanding of what we mean when we say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Romans 8 continues and says this of us. It says, not only so, but we also ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons. We long for the redemption that comes with the fullness of the coming of the kingdom. You know, many of us in here this morning, we profess faith in Jesus. We've been ushered into the kingdom by the radical grace of God, and because of that grace, we can, with the psalmist, we can call him our God. But I would imagine that there are also people in here this morning that if I just asked you this simple question, do you profess faith in Jesus? You would say, no, not right now. And if that's you this morning, I just want to tell you that you're incredibly welcome here. Uh, I haven't been here that long, but I sense that this is a place where you're free to engage the living God, and you're free to engage those around you with your real thoughts towards him and your real thoughts towards them, your real doubts, your real struggles, and your real questions, because the people that are sitting around you have real doubts, real struggles, and real questions. My mother-in-law has our family over every Sunday night for family dinner. It's awesome. Now, you don't believe me, but I love it. I look forward to this every week. Uh, there's a particular part of the meal that I really enjoy participating in and observing, and that is that most weeks uh, when we get there, the meal is prepared, and there, sitting in the middle of the table, is a clear pitcher of liquid. She calls it her concoction. The fun part about this is that week in and week out, the color of this concoction changes. And so some weeks, the the color of the concoction looks quite appetizing. And other weeks, the thing that I enjoy uh, <laughs> observing is watching each member of the family sort of quietly make up their mind as to whether or not it's worth risking a sip of the concoction or if it might be better to sort of quietly slip aside and grab a glass of water. And if I'm honest, there are weeks where water is the best option here. <laughs> But there are also weeks when, after taking the first sip, the concoction is mouth-wateringly delicious and, and leaves us wanting more. 
leaves us wanting more. And so if you're here this morning and you would have answered that question by saying, you know, not right now, I don't profess faith in Jesus. I, I, would, say you, I would say to you that I think God wants to do a, just a little bit more than set the concoction in front of you, hoping that you take a sip. I, I think that we often talk about it this way. We say things like, boy, we think God has whipped up something that tastes really good, and we hope that you try it. And we do hope that you try it, but just from personal experience, I think it's a little bit more than that. I think that God, if you'll bear with me, wants to take the pitcher of liquid and he wants to pour it on your head so that it runs down onto your lips and you taste inevitably of his goodness. And once you've tasted of his goodness, I'm convinced that you'll find yourself with this, psalmi- with this psalmist asking, when can I go and meet with God? You'll crave him. You'll be thirsty for the kingdom to come in your own life and in the lives of those around you. And maybe you're here this morning and you do profess faith in Jesus. And when he found you and rescued you, you said with joy in your heart, when can I go and meet with God? And then life happened and heartache hit, and maybe now your soul no longer runs to meet with him, and maybe now your soul pants for him out of a place of deep desperation. Maybe it's a place that says, God, I believe. Just help my unbelief because I'm not really feeling this whole thing right now. So you can long with excitement or you can pant through pain and suffering my boys, we've got two boys. My boys, they, they long with excitement for their milk in the evenings. Caleb's heart rate increases and his breathing quickens when his milk wanders into the room. At our house, as much milk as we go through, we just decided to train the milk to wander itself into the room. We're tired of getting up to get the milk ourselves, so we... And I realize that this is an inanimate kind of an object, but God's bigger than that in all our, our house, so he just... He just, the milk just shows up. <laughs> but there's also that kind of panting through pain and suffering that comes out of a place of desperate need. And maybe even anger or bitterness toward a God who we definitely know and love, but we don't often understand or like. When can I go and meet with God? Maybe you're thirsty for the kingdom to come this morning because if you're honest, you're just in a place where you, you long for the day when your tears will be no more. And you're just tired of everyone around you telling you you should just have more joy. And maybe it was a recent loss or a spouse that you don't get along with, a child that's impossible to raise right now. Um, a recent diagnosis, an injustice. Maybe you suffer from stinging anxiety. Been there. Maybe it's quick onset depression. Maybe it's unanswered prayer. Maybe it's just that the God who says he's so present often seems so silent. My favorite musician, Andrew Peterson, oddly enough, sings my favorite song. Listen to these lyrics. It says, it'll drive a man crazy 
It'll shake a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane when he's bleeding for comfort from thy staff and thy rod and the heaven's only answer is the silence of God. It'll shake a man's timbers when he loses his heart, when he has to remember what broke him apart. This yoke may be easy, but this burden is not, when the crying fields are frozen by the silence of God. And if a man has got to listen to the voices of the mob who are reeling in the throes of all the happiness they've got, when they tell you all their troubles have been nailed up to the cross, what about the times when even followers get lost? Because we all get lost sometimes. And I want you to know this morning that it's safe to thirst. It's safe to thirst in raw and honest ways because there's a God who loves to satisfy the deepest longings of our souls. When can I go and meet with God? There's a part of that question that implies that the psalmist is longing for the ultimate day when his soul will go and meet with God, but I think that just as true is the reality that his soul longs to meet with God now. But how? When the world is crying out, where is your God? Or maybe even you're talking to a fellow Christian and they're telling you about the goodness of their God and all you can hear is, where is your God? It's tempting to believe that he can't be met with. And we hope beyond hope that it's true and that he's real and that he's near. And listen to this in Acts 17. I love this. It says, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him. Though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our very being. He's not far, orchestrating the events of our lives so that we would long to meet with him. When can we go and meet with God? If we have a God who, in whom we live and move and have our very being, then I would say we can meet with God anytime. And there's two things that I want to draw out here about how God meets with us and we meet with him, and the first is prayer. A couple of weeks ago, Ryan did a series on prayer, and I was refreshed with just the simple fact that I can meet with my God anywhere and anytime through prayer. And then two weeks ago, the founder of joy.org stood up here, and in the morning service, he made reference to the fact that he thinks that it's possible for us, as the scripture commands us, to pray without ceasing. And he never told us how. But my guess is that it's possible for us to pray without ceasing because the spirit that lives inside of us is said to be always interceding. But I'm just going to butt in here for a second as a recovering, self-righteous Christian kid. And I'm going to say this. Our prayers are way too nice. When was the last time you just put your head in your pillow and yelled because you didn't have words for what you were feeling toward God? When was the last time you went on a run and had it out with your creator. And God's saying, talk to me. Tell me what's going on down here. I love the book of Habakkuk. Uh, several years ago, I had the opportunity to speak at Chuck Swindoll's former church in Fullerton, California, and I had just recently memorized the book of Habakkuk. You might be thinking, that's very strange. And so they, they asked me, so what do you want to 
preach on. I said, I want to share the book of Habakkuk. And they said, well, no, what do you want to preach on? And I said, I'm going to share the book of Habakkuk. And so I stood up and I started into Habakkuk. And here's what it says in the first verse. It says, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you don't listen. Or cry out to you violence, but you don't save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked him and the righteous so that justice is perverted. And he says, I'll, I'll stand on my watch. I'll station myself on the ramparts. I'll look to see what he will say to me and what answer I'm to give to this complaint. And I'll never forget the look on people's faces afterwards. A few of them came up to me. I just, I just didn't think it would sound like that. <laughs> I said, yeah, not all the prophets were homeschooled. Be honest with your king. It's, it's incredibly satisfying because God is not surprised or put off by your real thoughts towards him. The second way that I think God meets with us and interacts with us is through his word. And you say, wow, Josh, that's incredible. Prayer in the word. I've never heard that before. Christianity 101. I walked in here thirsty this morning, but now I'm good. You can just shut it down right there. And to that I would say yes and no. I'm not going to shut it down right there. But yes, in the sense that I think we should crave it. I think we should crave pure spiritual milk so that by it we can grow up in our salvation. As Peter says, now that we've tasted that the Lord is good. That the Lord is good. Several years ago, um, I found myself very thirsty the kind of thirsty that I described earlier, the I'm over it kind of thirsty. I had just graduated from college and moved to Nashville, and I was living in a barn with two horses. I'm just not kidding. You open the laundry room door, and there's Secretariat staring you in the face. And I would come home from work every day, and this was the first time I'd ever lived alone in my life, and I uh, I'd get out my Bible because I didn't, have, I didn't have anything else. And maybe you've lived alone, maybe you've experienced this, maybe you haven't. But for me, this was a desert kind of an experience in my life. And I'd get out my Bible and I would long to meet with God. And I didn't even necessarily do it because I wanted to. I did it because my soul was in a place where it was, it was, it was panting for God. And God did something interesting he took the pitcher of liquid, if you'll bear with me, that is his living word, and he began to pour it out on my head, and it began to run down into my mouth, and I began to taste of his goodness. I began to taste of his goodness because for the first time in my life, I came face to face with my own anger and bitterness and resentment toward a God that I definitely knew and loved but I didn't always understand or like. I didn't like what he was doing. I want to tell you a story that I think better describes how God met with me during that season. 
I went on a trip several years ago with a friend from college, and we did 30 states in 30 days. We started in Georgia, uh, went to California, up the California coast, down through Denver, uh, just south of the Great Lakes, up toward Maine, and down the east coast and back. 30 states in 30 days. If you're a young person in here, go do something like this. If you're an old person in here, go do something like this. <laughs> One of my favorite stops was a place called Niagara Falls. And at Niagara Falls, there's an attraction called the Cave of the Winds. At the Cave of the Winds, you stand in line to board an elevator that will take you down through bedrock and out at the base of the falls, but a safe distance from the water. And before you board the elevator, they give you a poncho. And then you get on the elevator and you go down, and as you exit the elevator, you find yourself uh, directed towards a bit of a maze, what looks like a Lord of the Rings type of a path that's bolted to various large rocks at the bottom of the falls. And uh, as I said, you start a safe distance from the water, but as you begin to climb the first set of stairs, multiple tiered kind of a thing, you begin to feel a strong mist. And if you weren't planning on this little excursion, at this point you're very thankful that they gave you a poncho. And then you climb the second set of stairs and large amounts of water are now bouncing off the nearby rocks and soaking the deck where you stand and the mist has turned to rain and the beads of Niagara are falling from the head of your poncho and dripping down onto your lips and you taste of a bit of the goodness of Niagara and then you climb to the third of four decks and you begin to wonder why they ever gave you a poncho in the first place. <laughs> you begin to feel the child welling up within you as you stick your hands and feet through the rails to feel the rushing rivers of water that are just at your fingertips and the head of your poncho now blown off by the wind. Your shirt underneath begins to soak and your feet are drenched and with joy in your heart you run to the fourth deck. You come face to face with 600,000 gallons of water per second and you rip off your poncho and you laugh and you dance and you sing and you meet with God. You meet with God in a real and raw and childlike and honest kind of a way. In Ephesians 5, Paul tells husbands to love their wives as Jesus loved the church. And gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church. This is, this is how Jesus loves his church, by washing her with water through the word. During those couple years that I lived in that barn, God communicated his faithfulness to me over and over and over again. By washing me with water through the word. And at first I had my poncho on. And if we're honest, this morning, you and I, we get up most days and we put our ponchos on because we know in our hearts that meeting with the living God is life-altering. We deceive ourselves into thinking that protecting ourselves from him is safer than being drenched in his grace. And maybe it is. But when you stand underneath Niagara Falls, the water doesn't stop. And eventually that poncho is coming off. And so this morning, as we sort of wrap this up, I want to share with you a section of scripture that God has used time and time again to 
wash over me. It's a place where he's met with me and I've met with him. It's a place where I've gone time and time again when I begin to wonder whether or not my suffering or my sorrow or my sin is too much for my God or if I begin to wonder whether or not he's even there in the first place. And if I'm honest, I have those, those real doubts just like you do. So it's in Hebrews 11, and it starts like this. It says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe is formed at God's command so that what is seen was not formed from what was visible. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offering, and by faith, he still speaks, even though he's dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God, and without faith, it's impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he's a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is by faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By his faith, he made his home in the promised land. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he slept in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so through this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these were living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are longing for a country of their own. If they'd been looking back to the country they left, they would have had an opportunity to return. But these were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And so God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said, it's through Isaac that your offspring shall be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke of the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instruction about his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger because he saw him who was invisible. 
By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not destroy the firstborn of Israel. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith Rahab, the prostitute, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness, praise God, was turned to strength who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. All these were commended for their faith, yet none of them received the things promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us they would be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders. Let us throw off our ponchos and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance to the fourth deck, the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you don't grow weary and lose heart. And your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you've forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves and punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble or defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. But you have not come to a mountain that can be touched or that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, or storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches this mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. But you've come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, 
the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a far better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If at that time they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he's promised once more, I'll shake not only the earth but also the heavens. These words once more indicate a removal of what can be shaken so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. It'll, it'll drive a man crazy. It'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane. When he's bleeding for comfort from thy staff and thy rod, and the heavens only answer is the silence of God. It'll shake a man's timbers when he loses his heart. When he has to remember what broke him apart. This yoke may be easy, but this burden is not. When the crying fields are frozen by the silence of God, and if a man has got to listen to the voices of the mob who are reeling in the throes of all the happiness they've got, when they tell you all their troubles have been nailed up to the cross, what about the times when even followers get lost? Because we all get lost sometimes. And then the song ends this way. I love it. There's a statue of Jesus on a monastery knoll in the hills of Kentucky, all quiet and cold, and he's kneeling in the garden as silent as a stone. And all his friends are sleeping, and he's weeping all alone. And the man of all sorrows, he never forgot what sorrow is carried by the hearts that he bought. So when the questions dissolve into the silence of God, the aching may remain, but the breaking does not. The aching may remain, but the breaking does not. And the holy, lonesome echo of the silence of God. All of creation is thirsty for the kingdom to come. And you and I, as his church, we thirst for the king and the kingdom. And so this morning, let's be thankful that the God who once knelt in the garden and proclaimed on his cross, I thirst, that he took on all of our sorrow, all of our suffering, and all of our sin, and that he guaranteed by his death and resurrection that we are receiving and we will receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let's go on up to the mountains and let's meet with our God and let's receive from him the satisfaction that our souls so desperately desire. Let's pray. God, you are never-ending mercy. You are never-ending mercy. And we bless your name this morning. Jesus, we bless your name. Father, cause us to feel the freedom in Jesus to interact with you, our living God who is present and in whom we live and move and have our very being. You are so faithful, God. And we bless your name.
And it's for your glory, Jesus, that we all say amen. You are uh, dismissed.